Breaking Atoms podcast, where we break things down to the very last compound. My name is Chris Mitchell, aka the Actual Factual. I'm riding solo today because Summit is away enjoying his wedding anniversary. So before I go any further, I just want to say congratulations and happy wedding anniversary to Summit and his wonderful wife. Today's special guest is none other than DJ Snips. Snips is the founder of Barbershop Records. He's also the co-founder of Living Proof. He's a DJ, producer, and a promoter with a very unique way of offending people with ease. We spoke about how we got into hip hop through breakdancing, growing old gracefully, dealing with online trolls, and more. Check it out. DJ Snips, how are you today? What's going on, man? I'm good, I'm good. Can't complain. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for joining us. I know we were supposed to do this uh, a few months ago, but then the corona hit. Um, you went on a, a self-imposed social media exile, which we'll touch on later. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll touch on that later, but it's 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 good to see you. You're, you're looking good. You're looking well. How have things how have things been um, in, 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 in the world of corona? I feel like kind of like most of us have got a similar story with with corona. It's been up and down. Um, New York was was was. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned before I've been in New York now for two years, but New York was um, particularly uh, like heavy at the worst point of Corona. I think. I think. I still think New York. I think has had it worse than anywhere else. Apparently, the statistics like one in three hundred and fifty people in New York died of Corona. Like it's it was insane out here around like April May times. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was scary, man. I mean, there was a time me and my wife were just literally locked in the house you know we we, right. we would get a cab to the supermarket once every two weeks stock up on food then not leave the house for two weeks and, and we did that you know best part of a month it was like that um things have kind of eased up now but it's yeah it's tough man i mean new york's a funny place as well i feel like there's a the city's really really changed since corona a lot of people have left it feels a little bit like apocalyptic when you go into town like if you go into manhattan right now midtown manhattan which used to be bustling with tourists and you know businesses and office workers it's like it's like a war zone man it's like zombies and and it's just derelict it's, it's insane mm, mm. but you you and you and the wife are good though we're good yeah yeah we're good we're, we're good. healthy we're you know we're, we're ticking over and rent's paid there's food in the fridge so yeah the simple things really ask life. for much more than that and in, in, yeah, no. you know Definitely, definitely. So let's take it back to the beginning, the roots. What was your entry point into hip hop? How did you, how did you first get introduced to the culture? Um, I would say my very first introduction to hip hop was via breakdancing. As a kid, I was terrible at it, um, <laughs> but I won a competition at school. This would have been. I t- do you know what? I, I can't tell you the exact year, and and without giving away my age. The the song that I danced to was Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jams. I wonder if I take you home, and it had okay. just come out. So that's how long ago it was. I was about okay. six years old, and um, I want to borrow chocolate at my school disco for breakdancing because at the time where I lived, um, it, it was it was popular, man. Um, like it, it was literally like you know, cardboard boxes on the street. You know, people practicing on the street. Like it was it. 
I'm, I'm talking kind of like mid eighties in St. Paul's in Bristol. And yeah, you know, so I was, I was consuming it from a very young age, but not really understanding what I was consuming because I was a child, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, um, you know, maybe at like 12 or 13, when you're really old enough to start forming your tastes. And that's when I really started buying albums and, you know, really paying attention. So we're talking about 91, 92. So uh, okay. like albums like Low End Theory, um, funnily enough, main sources breaking atoms. Um, <laughs> you know that that era of music. Um, uh, America's Most Wanted. Um, yeah, that was kind of the era where I really started paying attention and 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 understanding what it was I was consuming. And then obviously, kind of went back and 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 you know did my research on what what, what had come before that. But yeah, I'd say like ninety one, ninety two. Okay, so you you were raised on the classics then. How how did you make that transition um, from being just a, a, a consumer and a participant in the culture to saying, look, I want to be a DJ? Um, well, actually, I wanted to be a producer before I was a DJ. I would say this was around 95. Um, uh, I was just try- like just starting to understand how hip-hop production worked, right? Because... Um, yeah, actually, funny enough, my, my dad, who's obviously not a hip-hop fan, um, he would always point out records that I'd be listening to and be like, they've taken that from this or they've taken it from this. And then I started to understand this concept of sampling. Um, and I, I would like go through my parents' records and, and like hear stuff and be like, oh, that would sound crazy if you put drums behind that. or you know. So I was kind of watching producers like Premier and Pete Rock and Molly Marl and... Eric Sermon and all of these guys that I wanted to, I wanted to try and create what they did. But um, I started to understand why being a DJ was important to get to that point of making the music. You know, once you, once you understand kind of the whole concept of DJs, um, you know, how, you know, if, if like really taking it back and, 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 and separating the breaks from music and repeating loops and stuff, you understand why the DJ is so important in, in the concept of how hip hop production works. So I kind of realized, right, let me, let me really try and understand the whole kind of craft of DJing. But it was always, it was never kind of like, I never wanted to be a club DJ. It was always, I wanted to be a DJ that understood how it was relevant to the production side of things. So I kind of started DJing and producing kind of at the same time. Okay. Got you. Got you. Who are, who are some of the hip hop DJs you look up to and why? My opinions on DJs and DJ producers are different. So I'll give you like both for different reasons. Um, DJs, as far as just all round great DJs, um, in the UK, I would say without a doubt, Shorty Blitz and Mr. Thing are the two DJs who to me um, are just untouchable. Shout out to um, Shorty Blitz. He he DJed my wedding. Oh, for real? He DJed my wedding? Yeah. Well. <laughs> oh, no, listen, we, we had to fly him out. We had to fly him out. We were like, with, with me and my wife, it was one of those things like, you know, you can cut corners on certain things. We weren't cutting corners on the music side of things. So, yeah, we had to, we, we had to fly him out. When, when we got married, um, music was the only thing I was really allowed to have full control over. It was the one right. my wife was like, that's you, do it, whatever you need to do. So um yeah, sure, sure he spun at my wedding as well, funnily enough. Yeah, he, yeah, we he, we had um we had cellar dwellers. Uh, um 
you know, Klashnikov murder at the wedding party was nuts. Yeah. It was nuts. Yeah, it was fun. But go ahead. Sorry to cut you. But yeah, yeah. So Shorty to me is, Shorty is the ultimate club DJ, in my opinion. I, I don't think I've ever seen a DJ as clean and as well-rounded as Shorty. Um, Mr. Thing is probably, I think, technically the best DJ in the world. Um, and I say that, I know there are people that argue and say that there are turntablists who are more intricate or whatever, but I don't feel like they've got the, the soul in the way they do things that Mr. Thing does. You know, like he's just got, there's a real funky way in the way that he, I, I don't know, there's something about Thing. He's just, he's, he's ridiculous, man. Um, so those two for me in the UK, um, overall, um, I would say, the biggest influences on me as a DJ probably um, Stretch Armstrong for one, um, uh, maybe Tony Touch, uh, Funk Flex in his heyday. Um, yeah, probably those guys, Kid Capri, Duop, you know, all of the like classic New York guys. You know? Yeah. I was in Miami one year with, with Gordon, who we spoke about before. Yeah. And um, yeah, Kid Capri mash up a dance one time. It was mad. Like there was a part where he was like, who's from New York? And we said, yeah, we're from New York. We started screaming New York because we were just in the vibe. Kid Capri is mad. Yeah, and he sounded just like the tape. It yeah. was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. So behind you, you have a very impressive record collection. Yeah, I figured this would be the best backdrop. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you, it, it leads very well onto my next question. Yeah. So... How many records do you reckon you own and how much have you spent on the entire collection? Um, the latter part of that question, I don't even want to think about, if I'm honest with you. Um, yeah, house money, in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> as far as how many I've got, I think there's about 6,000. Um, wow. Well, there's about, there's about 6,012s and albums and then seven inches, there's a couple of thousand 45s as well. So, wow. yeah, probably somewhere between seven and 8,000, I reckon. So is it just for, is it for sample sources or is it just enjoyment or a bit of both? Uh, everything, man. I mean, it's it's DJ stuff as well. Like pretty much. So I'd say just in case I move this in case anyone thinks this is like a, a photoed backdrop. <laughs> so all of the top stuff is is hip hop album, okay, and hip hop twelves like DJ stuff. Then it goes into R and B, reggae, and then pretty much all of the. These two rows here at the bottom there are all like soul, funk, jazz. Nice. Well, either stuff that I listen to and I like or just stuff I want to sample from. And then the bottom row is all like house and disco stuff. So Nice. Yeah, okay. Pretty across the board. All right. So let's let's take it back to your movements. Before you went to New York, you were London-based, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do, am I right in saying you lived in Halsden? Long time ago, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... All right, I'm from Halsden. I was in between Halsden and Kensal Rise. Um, between you said Halsden something and where? Sorry, you cut out there. Kensal Rise. I was in between Halsden and Kensal Rise. Um, you said something on Twitter the other day, and I had to ask you about it. You yeah. said, someone was asking, what's the most ghetto part or area in London? Yeah. And you said Halsden, and I was like, nah, I've got to ask Snips about this, man. Why, why, <laughs> why did you hurt my feelings in that way and say Halsden is so ghetto? Nah, you know what it is? It's because I feel like Halsden, and, and maybe I'm wrong because I haven't been to Halsden in a couple of years, but the 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 change in London over the past ten years. You've seen areas like Brixton and Peckham and Hackney and all of the, all of these places, which you know people, if you weren't from there, you wouldn't necessarily go there. That have turned into these like hotbeds of of you know 
hipsters and party culture and all the rest of it. And I feel like Halston is probably the last part of London where that hasn't seemed to have happened. Well, it's happened. Really? Yeah, Halston is pedestrianised now, bro. We got we got a Holland and Barrett. What? Yeah, there's a Holland and Barrett. Like I remember one time driving through Halston with my mum yeah. and she was like, do you see how the area's changing? And I'm like, no, what do you mean? She's like, look at all the houses. There's no more net curtains. It's just blinds. <laughs> so housing, housing is housing. No, it's really gentrified. It's really gentrified now. There's like shisha bars yeah. as well. Um, I even said to my barber, I said to Tyrone, um, you guys have really got to get your act together and start having opening times and having some structure around here because <laughs> Tony, Tony and Guy is going to land soon and it's yeah. going to like, it's going to be a problem for you, man. Yeah. But Hals, Halsen's very different now. Yeah, okay. Oh man, I'll take that back. Um, yeah, Halsen's different. You, next time you're in, in the, um, next time you're in the UK, yeah. you know, let, let's talk. I'll take you, I'll take you around here. You, you will have a shot. It's been a minute. Yeah. Wow. You, you will definitely have a shock. But no, I understand. Last time I was I'm up just, there, they definitely, I think there's like, there's like, well, there was, maybe it's not even there anymore. There was one of the high rides left in Stonebridge. Everything gone. Come to, that's gone as well, yeah? Gone. Listen, this is why, <laughs> it's why I tell you, like, I was thinking the other day, like, I think I tweeted you about this. I'd love to do a documentary on um, Must Love and, and Kickoff Crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's the part of London people don't know about. And I think one of the issues with gentrification is that it erases history before yeah. certain people get there. So, yeah. you know, people are in Brixton now walking around with iPads and whatnot. And I'm like, no, nah, once upon a time, yeah, yeah. that that couldn't fly. And there's still parts of London very much like that. Yeah. But um, Halsen, Halsen is, is different. It's The old Halsen is gone. That's, gone. that's sad, man. I mean, I lived in Halsen a long time ago. I'm like talking like late 90s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you were you were like when Dreams and stuff was open. Yeah, yeah, DJ the Dreams. See, see what I mean. See what I mean. <laughs> All right, sticking with um, London though. How did you link up with Poisonous Poets? You got any fond memories from those days? Uh, I went to college with Revs. It's funny. You know how Londoners are, isn't it? Everybody's a bit like standoffish with each other. So we we were enrolling in an audio engineering course, and I could see him watching me, and I recognised him because obviously I knew about him from the battles, and um, he was just watching me a bit weird and then uh we both ended up in the same room like a waiting room because it's something to do with like I, I like i can't remember like there was there was people that were paying their fees and then there was people that had like like getting the fees discounted or something like that and i like i was in the same room as him and he asked me if i like hip-hop or something and he was like yeah we talked about it years later. He was like, yeah, man, I saw you wearing an Averix. I was like, who the fuck is this guy with the Averix on? And like, who does this guy think he is kind of thing? So we just got talking about hip hop. Um, and then uh, randomly I told him that I made beats. He was like, yeah, yeah, bring a tape over. Let me like, like this is a time like cassette tape. Like, so I brought over a tape to his house because um, he lived right by the college that we went to. And then we just kind of got cool from there. And then, um, yeah, so I went around there, played beats. We got cool. And then um, he introduced me to Doc. And at the time, Doc was hosting the open mics for Dilrill, um, which had just started and they needed a permanent DJ because they had a few people that worked in the store that would, that would DJ now and again, but they needed somebody that was going to be permanent. So Doc brought me in there, which is how the whole Dilrill and Poisonous thing were kind of connected. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So moving on from um, the Poisonous Poet stuff. I know you talked about your production st- your production, and how you wanted to be a producer before a DJ. I really like, I really like your production. Um, I remember, because I'm a liner notes guy, I remember seeing your name, um, Trife Diesel. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I, I <laughs> this is, Summit calls me the actual factual because I have all these albums. How did you hook up with Trife and um, how did you produce Heads or Tails and We Get In? 
Um, so I was in New York uh, on uh, just on a like I say holiday. It wasn't really a holiday. There was a time in the mid noughties, mid to late noughties, where I was just coming to New York. Whenever I had enough money to go to New York, I get on a flight and I just bring a bunch of beat CDs and just try and connect with artists and try and work with people. And I was at a club. I can't even remember the club. It was somewhere downtown. And um, I came outside and I saw Trife was there. I think Ghostface might have been performing earlier on or something. And Trife was there. And um, I went up to him and I was like, oh, like, yo, can I give you a beat CD, basically? Um, and then he heard my accent. He's like, yo, you from London? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, yo, do you know Megan from Mayhem? And I was like, yeah, funnily enough, I do. Like, he was like, yeah, that's my people. That's my people. Like, because they went to school with him in Staten Island. So, um, yeah, he took the beat CD. And then literally the next day I had my, my UK number on the CD. And then the next day he called my UK number. I was getting like a international call. He's like, yo, these beats are crazy. I want to use number five and seven or whatever it was on the CD. And then randomly, like, I was kind of like, ah, whatever. Cause I, I, at that point I'd met so many artists who were like, yeah, I want to use this beat. I want to use this beat. And it never materialized. But with Trife it actually materialized. And randomly there's, there's, a, there's a weird story about that as well. By the time the album was released, <coughs> I'd actually moved to New York because I was living in New York in 2009, 2010. And I was living with Lewis Parker. Um, okay. And Lewis had actually done a record on the Trife album as well. Mother Like You. Yeah. So, because he, I think he got it via the Ghostface link because Lewis had done a record on a Ghostface album uh, around the same time. Yeah. And then um, I remember Lewis asked me, he's like, yo, did you ever get paid for that? And I was like, no, nah, I never did, you know. And in my mind, I was like, it's the indie album. Like half the time, you're only ever expecting to get money off the back end or whatever. Like, and you know, this was at that weird time between like the new way that the music industry works with streaming and everything now. And like when it was kind of dying and everybody was just downloading stuff for free. So in my mind, I was kind of like, I don't even know, is it an album? Is it a mixtape? Am I ever going to get any money for it? I, like, I have no idea. Like, um, but Lewis is like, no, we never got paid. We never got paid. Like, I'm going to call my lawyer. And, kind of, and I was kind of like, ah, I don't, I don't even know if you need to do that, you know, bro. But he did it and he called his lawyer and then like Trife got wind of it. And then Trife wanted to beef me and Lewis. So like, I remember my boy being like, yo, I'm at this Raycon show and Trife's here. He said, he's looking for you and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? Like, I don't even, it all got squashed in the end and nothing came of it. I don't, I don't know if Lewis ever managed to get some money from it or, or, I, at that point, man, I mean, I probably should have had like paperwork in place or whatever, but I was just happy to do a record. I kind of figured it was like a mixtape-ish album that wasn't going to like really generate money and it was an official album. So I probably am owed money, but I mean, to be honest at this point, it's whatever, man, I was happy to do the project. Yeah, no, I think it's a good project and Mother Like You is, 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 yo, that, that track right there yeah, is man. crazy. Yeah, um, So... Donny Goins can't fit in my shoes. How did that one come about? So um, at the time I was working a lot with Jay Ronan, um, a mixtape DJ, and his mixtapes were always about doing exclusive records for like underground artists at the time. So he, um, he linked me up with Donny Goins. I linked Donny at his house. And then um, I think I did, I think I did something for Jay Ronan's mixtape with Donny and then me and Donny just kept in touch and I sent him some beats and he picked that one for Can't Fit In My Shoes. Um, yeah, I haven't seen Donny in a long time and I'm not even sure if he's still in New York, to be honest. Yeah, I haven't. I was really, um, his project, what was it called? Minute After Midnight, mm. I thought it was a really good album. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I'm pretty much on top of stuff. I haven't heard much, but um, you know, it would, I think we might need to go and look for him and yeah. talk to him. Yeah, um, Beat Butcher. We spoke to Beat Butcher a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, he speaks. Okay. Yeah, he speaks. Yeah, he speaks really highly of you. Uh, what's your relationship like with Beat Butcher? Well, we kind of come from the same school, man. Um, like Beat Butcher's actually really helped me with a few things too. Um, so we were both, you know, like UK hip hop producers in the late nineties, early noughties, working with, you know, a lot of the guys who were in the kind of scene in the UK, and then me and him at a very similar time were like, we need to get out to New York and we need to try and push this further. So we we were always kind of like in New York at the same time or, you know, going up to the same labels and, and trying to push beats to the same kind of people. So, you know, he, he actually linked me with the, he linked me with all the G-Unit guys actually. And unlike, you know, he, he, he worked a lot with those guys. The, the records that I was pushing to them never actually manifested, but through him, like 50 picked a beat one of the beats that I did um, that never came out, but you know, and, and it's weird. Like when you tell these stories, sometimes it's like, they almost don't sound true. But if you know how often, if you think about an album that has 12 songs on it, you probably find initially a hundred beats were picked for that album. Then maybe yeah, of course. 30 were recorded on, then it was whittled down to 20 and then they finally picked a 12. So there was a few different projects where, where beats of mine were picked fifties. I think it was the animal instinct album. Yeah, the beat, independent one. Yeah, there was a beat picked for that, um, but it never manifested. Um, I want to say Yayo picked a beat once. Um, but yeah, that was that was Butch, Butcher's link. Butcher put me up with Dre at G-Unit. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, me and Butcher have just always been cool, man. I think we, we come from a very similar place musically. Um, and yeah, it's just, just my guy. We've got a lot of time for beat Butcher. No, I hear you. So what happens in those in those situations? So 50 picks a beat, does that mean you can now go and shop that beat elsewhere or is it just like, okay, it's there. You can't use it no more. Um, well, I mean, the thing is until you've, until an artist, until you've signed a contract and you, you, you've signed that this is coming out on this album. I mean, you can give the beat to whoever you want essentially, which is why you see so many instances of, you know, I don't know if you remember with the Razkaz and the, the, the Jadakiss did. It's like, if you haven't signed up, like, I don't know how that situation played out, but it could have been a case of, you know, Jada picked it, but maybe Al didn't hear anything back and Razkaz picked it. So he said, yeah, go and use it. And then Jada signed a contract, but this had already come out. Or like, you know, like those kind of things happen a lot. So for me at that point, because of the level of the producer I was at the time, I was a nobody, 50 picks something. I'm not giving that beat to anybody else until I 100% know that he's going to use it. But if I'm Pharrell and 50's picked it, I'm going to keep shopping it until... You signed off on it, yeah. you know. I got so. you, got you. So you're one. One of the things I like about you is you're very outspoken. Um, <laughs> it's your superpower, but it can also piss people off. Where Where does that outspoken nature come from? Um, I don't know, man. Uh, I think, I think maybe I've always like, um, I've always kind of gone grain to grain, just in general. Like, you know, like I was never the kid at school that was like wanted to do wanted to take the kind of like accepted route you know like I always wanted to do something else I was always kind of like you know like like even like what I wanted to do for a living it's like you know it's not 
at 15, you're like, nah, I don't want to go to university. I want to be a DJ. You know, it's not normal, especially back then in the 90s. It wasn't normal. So for me, it's like I've always been used to being told what I think or what I want to do or what what I, you know, aspire to be is is wrong. So for me, I, I think I just um, adopted a, an outspoken kind of like, to me, it's like it's like trying to assert some assurance that, I'm confident in in what it is that I'm saying or, or what it is that I believe. Yeah. Okay. So your outspoken nature got you into trouble. And, and I say trouble with air quotes. Earlier this year, there was a, a Nelly ludicrous battle. Um, and you, you took to the internet basically to, I, I can't remember exactly what you said. Um, you can, you can correct me. Something along the lines of you weren't, people enjoying Nelly's music and it wasn't, People weren't enjoying it this way they claimed to enjoy it in 2020 back when it came out. Something along those lines. Uh, my, exact, my exact tweet, I said, I said, wow, you lot were really listening to Nelly like that in the early noughts. <laughs> and because, uh, I'll explain why I said it. I'll explain who I was talking to as well. I'm not talking to 25-year-olds who were 10 years old when Nelly came out. Of course they were listening to Nelly. That's, that's their, that was their pop music as kids, right? I was talking to my age group who I know for a fact were ridiculing Nelly at the time. And I feel like there's a culture of older people, late thirties, early forties that are so desperate to cling on to some sort of relevance with younger audiences. They're rewriting the history. So when I made that critique, like, cause I was seeing people I know people in their forties. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Nelly. I was like, really? Come on guys. You weren't, you know, so that was where my critique was. Um, but then obviously it got retweeted a few times and younger Midwestern kind of 25-year-old Twitter obviously found it and was like, who's this old white guy critiquing the music that we grew up on, right? So I understand how out of context it looks like, who am I to be saying that? But And I was cool with that. I, I can handle the, 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 the banner, right? Whatever, I can deal with the internet insults. Um, there was a few things that I was like, all right, this is getting silly. My thing is this, right? Um, the conversation that came around, like, I don't know if you saw like one person was like, these are the clubs that DJ Snips DJs in and they put like a Ku Klux Klan meeting up. I saw that, yeah. Do you, you want to know what's funny about the person that was sharing that, 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 um, uh, that meme? Tell me. That person has actually worked the door at my event. Okay. So hold, so hold on, so hold on, hold, hold, hold on. So you're telling me people who you, you know, whether directly or indirectly, have hired, um, put money in their pockets for them to support themselves and their families, turn around and make memes about you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's a bit. Yeah. That's dark. So, well, so look, my, my thing is this, right? If you're like a, a, a random kid from St. Louis and you saw, you don't know anything about me, and you saw that tweet. And you're like, fuck this guy. Cool, whatever. Like, I, I, I can, I, I'm, bro, I can appreciate the jokes. I thought Snow Button was hilarious. <laughs> I, I, that was a good one. I handled to Snow Button. I was like, yeah, that's hilarious. I'm, I'm cool. I'll ride with that. But it got stupid, man. Like, I got like over 150 DMs of people, like literal death threats, right? I got people go on my Instagram, find that my wife is black and then start making comments about her being a coon for marrying me. And like, like, do you know, like yeah. crazy shit. It's personal so for now. Me, I was like, oh. And the thing is, I know what it was. There's the, it was a lot of the crowd in the UK that don't like me anyway, that used it as a way to jump on 
and like fan of fire, you know? So like I said, people that don't know me that are just like, wow, why is this like old white man with a beard talking about the music we grew up on, fucking sending me Umar Johnson memes or whatever, that's fine, like that's funny. But when I've got people in the UK kind of running with it like that, I was like, no, nah, you're not taking the piss. Um, but it's Twitter, isn't it? It's like, these are the same people that will be at Living Proof in six months' time. Yeah, but let me let me let me play devil's advocate, right? So you're talking about it was you're referring to your circle, people who you grew up with, or you know people yeah. you were moving with, like in Nelly's music. Like I don't take Nelly seriously, so I don't mind sharing my age. I'm 38. Right. I don't take Nelly super seriously, but I liked Ei. Like I liked, so um, uh, I liked Ei. I liked Chingy. Um, yeah. I'm a massive Cash Money fan. Like, you see, when I go, like, when I'm outside and I hear like bling bling and all that, yeah. I lose it, bro. Yeah. So, what what is it? Okay, so let's say someone you grew up with mm. didn't like Nelly at the time. Yeah. But the years have passed and they're a lot more open to it. Like, how do they communicate that without seeming like they're jumping on a trend? My thing is this, right? There's a lot of stuff that you might not have liked at the time. Also, hip hop was really tribal, right? So I have it with like some of the jiggy era stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember at that time you you picked a side. You were either you were riding for the real shit or you were you were jiggy, right? And it was about identity at the time. So there were things that I like, like I use Tracy Lee as a perfect example, right? Um, at the time, if you was into underground hip hop, you would have missed an album like Tracy Lee's album. I love that. I love that album, bro. It's a great album, but there was a big club record on there, the theme, right? Which was a great record. Loved it. But at the time, if you were into underground, you might have missed that album. So if in hindsight, you've gone back to it and been like, actually, and I've done it, even Mace's first album. I never listened to Mace's first album when it came out. You just didn't, if you were in, in the world I was in, you wouldn't have listened to Mace's album, right? And I played, I played the, I played the big records off of it because they were big club records. But I wasn't going to listen to that album. Now, when I go back and listen to that album, I'm like, oh, there was some, there was some records on there, you know. So I'm not saying you can't realize that you may have, you know, kind of been wrong about something in the past. My thing with Nelly is this, and like I said, right, all right, you're someone you can say, right, I, I would have enjoyed some of Nelly's music, but I doubt you're attached enough to Nelly's music where you're going to be like, how dare anybody insult Nelly? Like, you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> And like I said, I, I get why a 25-year-old right now from St. Louis is going to feel that way about Nelly. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But no yeah. 40-year-old friend that I know, even if they will dance to hot in here in a club, they're not going to ride out for Nelly like that unless you're trying to prove something. Okay. Do you know what I mean? I hear you. So it leads on to another question. Yeah. How does one grow old gracefully in hip-hop music where you can stay true to what you may have grown up on but still be open-minded enough to, to like a 21 Savage record? Just be honest. Just be honest about what you like. And I think that's the problem with hip hop. I think nobody's honest about what they like. People, you know, people, people are more interested in, in, in telling everybody what they like than actually enjoying the music. People want to be on Twitter and tell this is, yeah, this is what I ride for. This is like, I'm listening to this. What are you listening to? And it's like, what do you actually enjoy listening to as opposed to what do you enjoy talking about and telling people that you listen to? And I think when people do that, there's always a, um, they're trying too hard to create a statement about who they are with what they listen to, as opposed to what they actually enjoy listening to. And I think, I think old people are very guilty of that because hip hop's so obsessed with youth, old people, like nobody wants to be called an old head. Nobody wants to be called irrelevant and out of touch. And it's like, so, so what you do is you get the people who are actually old 
pretending that they hate all the stuff that would actually resonate with them and liking all the stuff that doesn't necessarily resonate with them because they don't want to be seen as irrelevant or an, or an old head. Mm. You've actually worded, that's it, my frustrations, you've actually worded it really nicely because I couldn't articulate it, but um, yeah, no, no, definitely. Because like, I've had people say to me, Chris, you're stuck in a time warp. And I basically say to them, look, life is too short for me to spend my time listening to things and doing things that I don't enjoy. Yeah. Like I tried, I tried listening. There's a couple of Migos records I like, mm. um, but for the most part, and this is no disrespect to anyone who likes Migos, but my, I felt like my brain was slowing down. Yeah, when I was listening to yeah. them, and I, it's, I just didn't feel it was. It was almost like you know when someone says they drink alcohol and their reaction and response time slows down. Yeah. Like that's how I felt. Yeah. So it's like you know, but I'm also honest enough to say you know, once upon a time, I remember saying Mad Lib and Doom. That was weirdo music. I'm not listening to that. I'm Rockefeller. So you, you know that links into the tribalism you were talking about yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But you know, I, I have to be honest. Like I know there were people out in in my circle who were on Mad Lib early. K Night, shout out to K Night yeah. on Mad Lib early. I'm. I only got into Madlib like maybe early two thousands. Bro, I'm. I'm. I was late on Madlib and Doom. Late on that because at that time, this is the thing. In in the late nineties, I was very much into that uh, India and New York, um, you know, stretching Bobito kind of stuff. But then yeah. I was also playing the clubs, so I really like got turned off of that indie scene because I felt I felt like there was a real dip in quality once you kind of hit the late nineties, early noughties. You know, I, I kind of feel like that golden era indie wave was like 95 to about 97, 98. 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, I felt like indie music could open the doors where it was like, all you had to do was say, fuck Jiggy music and put out an indie record and people rated you. And I, I was always like, nah, this is tr- this has got trash at this point. So I kind of went the other way and I was, I felt like mainstream rap had gotten a lot better. I felt like the Rockefeller stuff was great. I felt like the D-Block stuff... I, I was really embracing with that. So my friends that were into Doom and Dilla and Madlib, I was like, nah, I'm not like, I'm done with that indie rap stuff. It's not like, it's not hitting the way it used to hit. And I actually think mainstream stuff or like not mainstream, mainstream, but you know, like a kind of like street mainstream stuff was doing a lot better. So I kind of missed a lot of the, um, the Dilla and Madlib stuff. And then it was, it was later on that I went back and was like, nah, I mean, not so much Dilla. Dilla, I was always kind yeah, of yeah, into, yeah, me but too. I had a housemate who was the biggest Dilla fan. And we used to argue about whether Dilla, Dilla or Primo was the greatest producer ever. So I used to dismiss Dilla a lot because I lived with someone who was so in my ear about, oh, Dilla's better than Primo. Dilla. And I, I, still to this day, I'm, I'm never going to hear that. Primo's the GOAT. You but, know what? Um, it's a, I have this question here um, I was going to ask you, but before, before we move on, the crazy thing to me about Madlib and them is that I was listening to them before I realised who they were. Because yeah, it was yeah. only when I went back in time and I picked up Liquidation. Um, right, right, yeah, yeah. And I thought it said Madlib, killing it. And I was like, oh, I've been listening to this brother from school. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's, yeah, it's just crazy. It's crazy how the dots connect. I've got a question here. You've often said, and you literally just said it now, Premier. So yeah. Premier is is often, you know, in terms of hip hop heads, he's the GOAT. For me, Primo, Pete Rock, depends what day you ask me. As a producer. I, I, I mean, I kind of feel like Primo's my guy, but I'm never mm-hmm. going to argue with someone that says Pete Rock. Right. You know right. what I mean? I mean, I mean, to be honest, a lot of my heads that are older than me will say Marley Mar. Yes, I'm, that's I'm true. Not gonna, I'm not going to argue with someone that says Marley Mar either. Yeah, no, me neither. But I'm not a producer. When I hear beats, I don't care what you made it on. Yeah. I'm not one of them people like, where's the drums from? Like, you know, Ninth Wonder, like he, make, he uses Fruity Loops and whatnot. I don't care. Does it knock? Yeah. yeah. As a producer, though, who understands the technical side of it, why is Primo so great? Because his ear is just 
ridiculous. Like if you if if you were to study the samples he's used and what he's done with them, and to be honest, I'll give Dilla that as well. Mm. I think the difference, the reason I will put Primo over Dilla, I think they're both geniuses in the way that they hear things. It's just because Primo's made more classic records than Dilla. You know, I look at it like this, right? Let's arguably say Jay-Z's the best rapper of all time, right? I'm not saying he is, but let's arguably say that. If you're a rapper, you could say Black Thought is a better rapper than Jay-Z, right? Like a rapper's rapper, you could say Black Thought's a better rapper. And you'd probably be right. But for the most part, we're still going to accept Jay-Z's probably the GOAT. And I look at Dilla like that. Dilla's the black thought of production. Like okay. he's probably not justified at being the greatest of all time. But if you're talking about purely from a technical standpoint, no one can tell you that there's a better producer than Dilla. Same way no one can really tell you there's a better bar for bar rapper than Black Thought. You know what? Your analogy game is pretty impressive. Yeah, no, I'm with that. I'm just not, you know, it depends, man. Like Dilla's in my top five. So yeah, he's in my top five. Yeah, it's interchangeable for me. It's Premier, Pete Rock, Dilla, RZA, and uh, I'm tied between Large Professor and Eric Sermon. But I just—it's yeah, just I about what I like. As you, but I'll put Marley in there over in the fifth. Yeah, yeah. No, Marley. I mean, because without Marley, you wouldn't have these guys in it. So yeah, yeah. Shout out to Marley Mar. All right, we're gonna wrap up soon. I just wanted to get your thoughts though, Rishi Sunak. He's got the internet whiling. Um, recent comments basically telling musicians and DJs, you, you man need to go and get jobs. Um, how do you feel about that? I feel like musicians and DJs that are... Um, we, we know what the fuck is at stake. Do you know what I mean? Like, we, like it's, it's condescending to tell us that, right? But most of us got jobs to, 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 um, to um, support our goals and dreams as DJs or producers anyway. We've already done that before. So for me, it's like, yeah, like I get it. I, 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 like we, we, we have to find a way to support ourselves. It's, it's condescending to tell people to go and get a fucking job. You know, like... Obviously, I can't make a living as a DJ right now. So whatever it takes me to do to be able to put food on the table, then I'm going to have to do it. I don't need some asshole telling us, you know, just forget about it and get a job. Like, I already had to do that to get here. So I'll do what's necessary. It doesn't, I think it's, I think it's condescending to tell people that. Yeah, well said, well said. But the reality is for some of us, yeah. I mean, if you don't want to starve, you might have to go and get a job. No, it's true. It's true. It's true. Um, your co-founder, Living Proof. So you un- you understand the whole club scene, live events, yeah. you've done it. Once this yeah. pandemic is over, what would be your tips as someone who's hosted classic events? What would you need to do or what does the industry need to do to get the music and club scene going again? Um, I don't think they'll struggle to get people out. I think the moment people know they can go out, people will be out. Um, I would say what the pandemic has done has kind of flatlined things where um, come with something original. You need to come with something original. I think the moment the doors are open, you're going to have a hundred different raves where the same DJs are going to play the same 20 records all night. So how are you going to stand out? What are you going to do that's different? 
And I don't know what that could be. I mean, I think we've we've been doing this long enough that we've established an identity ourselves. I'm not in the loop enough to know what 20-year-olds, what the equivalent for 20-year-olds now would be. But whatever it is, go and find something new. Go and find a, an identity and, um, you know, do something original. Yeah. That's okay. only way we're going to stand the test of time because there's going to be less clubs. There's going to be less people doing it. What are you going to do to stand out? Yeah, good point. I'm going to make a confession, though. I've never been to a Living Proof show. Never. It's nothing, no, it's nothing personal. My wife stands <laughs> by it. She's like, listen, Living Proof is the one. So yeah. I'm going to make a promise to you that once this pandemic is over, next Living Proof show in London, I'm coming. Or come to, if you ever come to New York, come to the parties in New York. Yeah, I'm planning to come see Gordon next year. Yeah, so I was supposed yeah. I was supposed to be there this year, but you know, pandemic in it. So no, you have my word. Next time there's a living proof in my area, I'm coming. Fifty two beats, really good idea. I think it's a, a great way to keep attention over a long period of time. What inspired the idea, and what can we expect to hear from you in terms of the styles of production? Well, the um, I had the the name is inspired by the Kid Capri tape, the fifty two beats tape um, that he put out back in the day. Um, and I almost actually did the artwork reminiscent of that tape, Big Up to Budgie, there, because he did that for me, but I actually decided not to go for it in the end. I didn't think anyone would get the reference. Um, <laughs> but as far as the whole concept of it, it actually came um, talking to a friend of mine, uh, Rachel Fox, Big Up Rachel, um, who we were just talking about consistency and how... I think it was Russ that she was mentioning. It was like, you know, if you look at how he got big, he literally just put a record out every week. And we were just talking about how like Spotify works, how Bandcamp works and how like kind of the snowball effect of, you know, like you put a record out, you get 10 people listening to it. The next time you get those, you get eight of those 10 people plus four new people. And the next time you get nine of those 12 people plus, you know, three new people or whatever. And that's how the snowball effect kind of works. So I was like, all right, let me do something where, I can continually do that and allow people to just kind of like, um, like gravitate towards to gr- gravitate towards it um, during the journey, where it's not a thing where you have to kind of start. You can kind of come in on the twelfth beat and then go back and backtrack and listen. So I just felt like it was a way to make me have to commit to the consistency of putting something out every week, right? Um, and also I like the idea of, of people being able to hear the um, the progression in the music throughout 52 weeks. You know? Yeah. It's, it's actually, it's, it's just made me think, it's almost like if you got onto the wire, if you, if you got onto the wire or Breaking Bad in season three, then you go back yeah. and watch what's yeah. happened. It's almost like a serialized yeah, sitcom exactly. in music form. No, dope, dope idea. I'm Apart from Because it's, f- it's the, the band camp is literally one project where I had a beat every, every week. But for streaming services like Spotify and iTunes, I'm going to drop it in four parts. So once okay. I've got a quarter of it, 13 beats, I'm going to drop part one on Spotify, then part two after another 13, and then do it like that as well. And I may do a vinyl at the end of it, or I may do a tape or something, like some kind of limited like physical of it as well. Okay, nice, nice. Apart from 52 beats, um, let the listeners know what else they can expect from you. Um, so I also, um, I don't know if you heard the, the product single that I put out, um, just over a year ago with Will Stowe, spoken word artist. Yep. Um, the classic defected picked up and put out. Um, so I'm also doing stuff like that as well, like kind of more houseier, um, more houseier stuff. I've got another record coming out with with classic uh, in February, 
which features Pauline Taylor, um, who was the singer for Faithless in the 90s. Okay. So that's a whole different bag to my hip-hop stuff. Um, but it's still in the same vein. It's still kind of chopping up samples and breaks and, you know, like... You know, like when I make house music, I make it from the same perspective that I make hip hop. It's like filtered sub basses and and like you know weird chopped up soul samples and and funk stuff. So, you know, if you like the hip hop stuff I do, I feel like there'll be something in there with the house stuff that I do as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing that. I've also got a gospel project coming out. I know what? I'm, yeah, I know I'm late on that as well. No, but, you're not late. I'm gonna say something real crazy. And no one, I, I've never said this in public. Yeah. I think I was one of the first people in the UK to sample gospel music. Really? Yeah, 2000 and, to go back, 2009. Yeah, you probably my, would have been then. On my second album, I sampled Richard Smallwood, Procession of the Levites, because I grew up in church. Right, right. So I sang in choir, so I, I was like, why is no one sampling gospel music? Yeah, yeah. But I know that sounds crazy to say that in 2020, because I'm not a household name, but I was yeah. one of the first. Yeah, so I, I don't doubt that, man. I don't doubt I'll that. Send you, I'll send you the song. Yeah, yeah, please, please. Um... Yeah, so I, I've done, it's like an eight-track gospel um, EP um, I'm putting out myself. It's like there's a couple of house records on there, there's a couple of hip-hop records on there, but it's all based around gospel samples. And I'm actually in the process of, the reason it's kind of delayed is because I'm talking about a collaboration with a clothing brand and an incense brand. Um, so I don't want to say anything yet until it's confirmed. Yeah, so hopefully that's, that's going to be early next year release. That's crazy. I was gonna ask you about your fashion, because um, look, I, I don't care in it. I'm not a fashionista, but I've always <laughs> liked, like even, even like your press photos and stuff. I've always liked how you dress. Oh, safe. I've always liked how you dress, man to man. I got, I got to tell you that. Yeah, I mean the whole streetwear thing. I've always been into, and I definitely, um, I would love to do that. Like with the label, with the barbershop label, is to move into fashion as well and and kind of launch a, a streetwear label off the back of that. And that's definitely something that will be like. It's definitely a future plan. I don't know how I would ex- execute it yet, but it's definitely something that I want to do. Okay. Um, but yeah, apart from that, man, the gospel stuff, the, um, uh, potentially working on some more stuff with gigs. Um, I send him beats from time to time. We had a conversation a little while ago about doing something new. So um, yeah, you may see some more stuff with gigs come as well. Okay, nice. Where can we find you on social media? Uh, I'm back on Twitter, so yeah. <laughs> find me on Twitter, Snips Tweets, uh, yep. Snips Music on Instagram. Uh, my Bandcamp is snipsbarbershop.bandcamp.com and snipsmusic.net um, for the website. Um, but if you go on my Instagram and hit my link tree, all of those links are in there. So that's probably the best centre place to get me Snips Music on Insta. Thank you, thank you so much for your time. No, appreciate you having um, me, man. I like you. I know we haven't hung out much, but I, I always dig people who are honest and I know where I stand with them. Um, you you would be, you, you should get into politics, man. It would be an absolute disaster and a zoo, but because um, they'd probably assassinate you in 24 hours. But I appreciate you, appreciate your openness and I just appreciate your passion, your passion for the culture, man. Thank you so much. No, thank you, man. Thank you. And next time I'm in London, I'm, I'm definitely bringing you out to a living proof as well. Once again, many thanks to DJ Snips for taking the time out to join me on Breaking Atoms. Do remember, 
We are on the socials. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Break the Atoms. We'd love to hear from you. Send your feedback, write your reviews, whatever. We'd love to hear from you, and we always respond. Summit will be back next week for another action-packed, fun-filled episode of Breaking Atoms, where we'll be discussing hip-hop music, culture, and politics with lots of unnecessary research and inappropriate humor. See you next week. Peace. <laughs>